0: Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Thank you, Blake. Good morning, everybody. Shout out to the Sterlington Panthers state champions. Way to go, Sterlington. That was awesome. You know, uh, it's kind of a mixed bag because OCS, guys, our hearts go out to you guys and Uh, It was kind of a a sad thing. You know, you got Farmerville playing Sterlington, so our hearts go out to the Farmerville people. But man, keep your head up. I mean, you both played in the dome. Who gets to do that? That's pretty cool, huh? Um, Get your Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. This is the story of the wise men. Uh, I really want to focus this morning instead of the wise men on the one crazy guy, Herod. Um, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where's the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come forth from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem, and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go worship him too. Of course, this was a trap. And God warned the wise men, don't come back and tell Herod where the baby Jesus is. You guys just get out of here a different way. And they went a different way. At the same time, an angel gave word to Joseph and Mary, you guys need to get out of Bethlehem too, so y'all head the other way. Now, skip down to verse 16 and look at Herod's reaction. Herod was... Furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. And that act of genocide would forever place Herod as one of the great villains in the annals of human history. Why'd he do it? You know, some say that's just what Herod did. It was just Herod being Herod. Anytime Herod felt threatened, he murdered people. In fact, he murdered his own sons. He murdered his in-laws. He murdered his wives. One of the Roman emperors said of Herod, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son because the word pig in, in the Greek and the word sons in the Greek are almost identical. They just Almost exactly the same word, but it was a a play that Herod was king over Israel where it was forbidden to eat pork. And so the pigs ran free, but his sons got murdered. And that was Herod. And so maybe he did it just because he felt threatened and that's what Herod did, Herod being Herod. But then I thought maybe there's more to it than that. You see, this isn't just history that we read. This is salvation history. And God in his sovereignty, when he weaves these stories he uses people as they are. Um, he doesn't sanction the killing of those children in Bethlehem, but knowing Herod would do that became a part of the story. And so, as we read these stories, we're not trying to just learn, we're trying to grow. And there's a difference there. We're not trying to just gain head knowledge. We're trying to grow in our spiritual understanding and our character of what God wants us to be. And so when I read these stories, I look for myself in these personalities. And I look at Herod and I go, I don't see myself in Herod. I, I can't identify with being a tyrannical despot who uh, would murder innocent children. That's just, that's not there. But then I got to thinking as I read more closely and as I understood the background history of it, Then maybe there was more here than meets the eye. You see, Herod was born in 72 B.C. You got that? 72 B.C. And when you're talking about B.C. and A.D., from B.C. you count backwards, right? So Jesus was born during the time of Herod. Well, historians know that Herod died in 4 B.C. You got that? You're like, wait a minute, how can that be? Because BC stands for before Christ. And if Jesus was born in 4 BC, then he was born four years before he was born. How did we get there? Well, a monk named Dionysius missed it by four years. We're actually four years off. AD stands for Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. It's really the year of our Lord, uh, 2025. But let's not try to work that out. The point is this. Herod was alive when Jesus was born. Herod was born in uh, 72 BC, which makes him 68 years old. Now, in that day, 68 years old was getting long in the tooth. It's getting pretty old. The older I get now, the younger that is. It's a, ba- it's a mere baby now. But back then, it was old. And to add to that, he had a sickness called Fournier's grand- gangrene. Don't look it up. It's basically gangrene of part of your body you don't want gangrene on. And it's a horrifically painful illness. In fact, it's such a horrifically painful illness that Herod had attempted suicide to try to put himself out of his own misery. Now stop there. Here you've got a 68-year-old guy with a terminal disease that is in such chronic pain that he wants to kill himself. And yet when he hears news of this baby being born, he becomes so threatened by that that he kills all the children in Bethlehem two years old and under. Why would he do that? What threat does that baby possibly have to him? Why would a suicidal maniac who's dying of a terminal disease care about what's going on with a baby being born. I mean, let's just for sake of argument, let's say that Jesus was what Herod might have feared that he would be, that he would grow up and lead an insurrection against the Herodic Empire, and he would take over and kick Herod out and replace Herod on the throne of Israel. Jesus couldn't have done that for at least 17 to 20 years. He wouldn't even be a threat to Herod for 17 to 20 years, and Herod's going to be long gone by that. He himself had to have known that. He died within months of Jesus being born. So why did he care? And so I started to wonder, maybe Herod wasn't only threatened, maybe he was also just jealous. You see, Herod had everything in the world. Herod had wealth, he had power, he had women, he had the authority of the Roman Empire behind him. There was nothing that he couldn't have except this. Love and respect. Everybody hated Herod, and he knew it. In fact, he knew it so much that he issued a decree that upon his death, he, they were to, uh, they were to uh, arrest some leading citizens of Jerusalem and that upon Herod's death, they were to execute all of those leading citizens of Jerusalem. Because Herod said, if they will not grieve over my death, at least they'll grieve at my death. And so he knew, you know, He's despised, and then all of a sudden, here are these wise guys talking passionately about this popular new baby king, and they're all enthusiastic about it, and I suddenly thought, could it be that Herod's murderous rage was as much about envy as insecurity? I really think so. I think Herod had the green disease, envy. And I think that was as much in play as his own insecurity. And so I look at Herod's life and I go, well, I I don't really see myself as a maniacal madman. I got to admit, there are times that envy shows up in me. It shows up in all of us. And so all of a sudden, I'm confronted with something that I need to deal with. And you know, it's funny that envy really becomes, rises to the surface during this time of year. During the Christmas season, I mean, if you're single and you're going through the holidays right now, you know what it feels like. I mean, every party is a couple's party. Everybody is celebrating their family stuff. And you're always on the outside looking in. And it's hard not to struggle with envy. Even if you are married, you look at pictures on Facebook and Instagram and you see these perfect families with the perfect gifts, with the perfect decorations, in the perfect environment and everybody's perfectly happy and you look at their lives and you go, that's not my life. Why can't I have what they have? You know it's staged, right? You know all that Facebook and Instagram stuff, it's staged, right? You know it isn't real. I saw this on a video. Uh, and I asked the guys to download it. Watch what happens. Here's, here's, here's a typical example of Facebook. Here's, here it goes. That's Facebook. That image you see on social media only lasted the length of a shutter speed. And once that perfect image was captured, you look at it and go, ah, let's show everybody what life is always like. And when you look at that, it's hard not to envy it. Even though you know it's not true, you you can't get over it. And, And you think, why can't my life be more like that? Their life isn't like that either. But you don't see it. You only see it staged for the moment and you envy it. You know, I recently listened to one of the best sermons on envy I've ever heard by Timothy Keller. I told Amy, I said, that's the greatest sermon on envy I've ever heard. I wish I could preach like that. I said, you know what? I wish I could just preach his sermon. My son John laughed and said, that's ironic because I was envying a sermon on envy. (laughs) Keller said that at its core, envy is wanting someone else's life. And I know it, This isn't typically a Christmas sermon, but in the Christmas season, this is one of the things we deal with, so why don't we deal with it here? Let's talk about envy, okay? First of all, let's talk about what it does to us, and this is the first step. You have to learn to hate it if if you're going to deal with it, and that means you have to see it for what it's doing. First thing is envy makes you short-sighted, because when you envy, you only see what you don't have, and you miss the rest. And you miss the long game. In envy, like I said, you are envying a moment in time. It's a snapshot. And in that moment, you forget about all of the other things that have been positive that have happened in your world. And all you see in that moment is what you don't have or what someone else does have. And you miss the end game. You forget that God is in charge and what you're experiencing right now will not always be your experience and that eventually God's going to deal with you and take care of you and you trust in that. But envy takes all that. Look at Herod. He only saw the immediate threat. He heard about a baby and in that momentary reaction, he goes off and he tries to eliminate the threat and deal with the, the person who has it better than him. Secondly, envy hurts your relationships. There's this beautiful verse in Romans eight fifteen. It says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And I've said it many times. There are a lot of people who can weep when you weep. I don't know why that is, but they're better at weeping when you weep. But there are few people who can rejoice when you rejoice. And the reason for that is because envy is at its core competitive and comparative. And for some reason people will often feel that your success somehow equates to my failure. And so I can't really celebrate your success because your, your success, if I'm competing with you, means that I've somehow come up short. Um, Keller said this, Envy is being unhappy at other people's happiness, and envy is weeping because people rejoice. Go back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. Whereas he has been born king of the Jews... For we saw his star in the east and we come to worship him. I mean, the wise men were rejoicing. Look down at verse 10. They rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. You see these modifiers. How, how did their, how was their joy exceeding and great? These guys are euphoric. They've spent two years on a camel. You know, it's been a two-year journey. I don't, know, I don't know if it took them two years to get there, if it took some time to prepare and pack and get ready, but their overall experience from the time they saw the star to the time they arrived in Jerusalem was two years. They're finally at the end of their goal. Their mission is almost accomplished. And when you get to that finish line, man, there's euphoria. That doesn't mean Jesus was two years old. I mean, God could have hung the star in the sky two years in advance, but, but the fact of the matter is they'd been after this for two years. They're excited. They're euphoric, but look at, look at Herod's reaction. When Herod heard this, he was, what's that word? Troubled. You see it? Their joy turned into his sorrow, and all Jerusalem with him. Notice when Herod's troubled, everyone else is too. And when you constantly compare and compete then you're constantly damaging those relationships because people in relationship, at at their core, they want somebody who will be happy when they're happy and who will be sad when they're sad. And if you're always flipping that upside down and you're happy when they're sad and you're sad when they're happy, then those people are going to walk away from you. And so envy ultimately always leads to a very lonely life. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, you let this thing fester in your life, and you're going to end up alone. It destroys relationships. And envy steals your joy. You can never be happy when you constantly feel threatened by other people's successes. Brent Hansen wrote this in a brilliant book called Unoffendable. The church needs to read that book. Unoffendable by Brent Hansen. We humans are weird. Other creatures feel threatened just like we do. The big difference, though, is that when they feel threatened, it's because they're chased by, say, a lion. And it makes sense that they're threatened since a lion can kill them. But humans don't need to be chased by a giant cat or wolves or a shark to feel threatened. We don't have to be chased by anybody or anything. We humans are special because we can manage to feel threatened by being while being chased by absolutely nothing. And amazingly, that nothing is killing us. It's a great point. Look at Herod. He was threatened by a baby. (laughs) It's, It's just absurd to me. He had the power of the Emperor Augustus at his back. And he's threatened by a baby. And it's not just any baby. It's a poor baby who is so poor that they couldn't find lodging. He's so inconsequential that he's born in a barn and he's wrapped in strips of cloth and he's laying in a manger. I mean, it just doesn't get any less consequential than that. I mean, sure, he's got these weird people showing up. He's got the shepherds showing up. He's got the wise men showing up and the wise men are bringing incense and gold. And you know, Mary's thinking, couldn't it have been some pampers and formula? I mean, who brings incense to a baby? You know, I saw this funny thing that uh, uh, you probably saw it too, and I'll I'll butcher it, but it went essentially like this. Mary is exhausted, and she's finally got the baby to sleep when a young man shows up and says, what this woman really needs is a drum solo. (laughs) Isn't that great? you got all these crazy characters coming and going, but at the end of the day, it's just a little poor baby with a pitifully poor family in a tragic situation. And yet all these things seem to threaten the insecurity of Herod. And you know what I realized? Nowhere do we see the word joy or happy in the same sentence as Herod. He's never once ever referred to as happy Herod. You know why? Why? Because envious people are miserable. You got it in you, you're miserable. Envy does that, it steals your joy, and all you can see is what you don't have. Envy blinds you to the Father. This is the worst part. I thought it was interesting. The wise men told everybody about the star. Man, we saw this star. It's so cool. It was hung in the east. It must signify some, some important person being born. We've come to see it. We wind up in Jerusalem where a king ought to be, but he oh, he's not here. He must be in Bethlehem. Let's go. We see the star again. woo you know. And they're telling him all about it. And they're like, where would he be born? And, and all the scribes and the religious teachers are like, well, uh, I don't know, you know? And so they pull out all the scrolls and blow, roll them out, blow the dust off of them like you do with your Bible when somebody asks you a Bible question. Uh, I don't know, let me see, uh, you know? And they finally realized, Micah 5, 2, and they quote it in... Matthew six two and notice most of your Bibles it's in all caps because he's quoting the Old Testament and you O Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not least among the rulers of the cities of Judah for a ruler will come from you who will shepherd who will be the shepherd for my people Israel look here it is God was taking human form five miles from Jerusalem but Herod never went to see him. Envy had blinded him to what God was doing. And that's what it does in your life too. You can't see what God's doing because you're too worried about what somebody else is doing. You're so focused on them and what's going on in their life, you can't see what God's doing. You don't even pay attention to it. You don't even take the time to care. He's five miles away, and Herod never, never tried to see him. So that's what it does. Let's talk about how to deal with envy, okay? For me, it's all about focus, right? Jesus made this kind of beautiful statement. He said, the lamp of the body is the eye. And if the eye is full of darkness, then the whole body is full of darkness. But if the eye is clear, the whole body is full of light. And if the light that is in you is darkness, he says, how great is the darkness? In other words, where you put your focus determines what comes into you. It's like the lens that allows the light in. And if you focus on dark things, then your, your soul and your spirit is full of darkness. But if you focus on the light, then your, your spirit and your soul become enlightened. That's what he's saying. And so if we're going to deal with envy, we've got to shift our focus, which determines where you look. So I want to suggest this. First of all, look inside. Timothy Keller said something that uh, I'd never considered. He said, envy is the last sin we're willing to admit. I never thought about that. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, he said, we can admit lust or anger or unbelief or selfishness, but there's something absolutely, absurdly petty about envy that we can't bring ourselves to admit it. There's nothing more humiliating than to admit that you're envious. But if you won't admit it, then you can't end it. Let's go over to Psalms. Keep your finger on Matthew 2. Let's go to Psalm 73. This guy's in struggling with envy. He said, For I envied the proud. When I saw them prosper, despite their wickedness, I mean, he looks at their life and he's like, man, these guys have it all together. The bad guys are doing great. Verse 4 they seem to live such painless lives their bodies are so healthy and strong i look at their body they man they look great they yeah, I look at my body it's like what happened you know and god says maybe they're working out maybe there's something there they don't have troubles like other people they're not plagued with problems like everyone else they wear Pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. I love the way the New Living says this. These fat cats have everything. Their hearts could, never, their hearts could ever wish for. And of course, all of that's a lie, but we always believe the lie. But then he stops and he looks inside and he's, he realizes what's going on. Look down at verse 21. He says, when, when my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, you see what happens? When you begin to focus on this other person... Not only do you not see clearly, but your your heart gets grieved. You start dealing with that grief and then your spirit gets embittered. The most embittered people I've ever met are the people who never battled their envy. But then he gets honest with himself and that's where we have to start. Bad as I hate it, I have to admit it. I got to ask for help. Look at what he says. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. And what he's saying is, I see it in me and I see what it's doing to me. Hey, look, this is the first place. I look inside and I say, okay, um, I see envy in Herod. Do I see envy in Bill? You ever, you ever taken that hard look? And then secondly, you look around, you look in, you look around. Envy gets your, get your focus off what you don't have. And you need to remember what you do have. um, I think this is why Thanksgiving is so important that it precedes Christmas because in Thanksgiving, we're supposed to stop and remember all the blessings of God before we get to Christmas where it's all about envy, you know? And so in Thanksgiving, we got to remember. And so I look around and I see, look, look what he says in verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. It's like, God, I've got your presence in my life. No matter what happens, I've got you and you hold my hand. You know, the funny thing about those other people who seem to be prospering and their bodies are healthy and their bank accounts are full and everything seems to be going their way, they don't have God and they don't have Him holding their hand. And when their world crashes in... All they have is that world, that fake sense of world. But he he realizes, I've got you, and nothing is as powerful as your presence. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Not only is God with him, but he's guiding him. In other words, look around. Stop focusing on what you don't have, and remember who you have. And then look up. Envy is earthy. Envy presses your eyes downward. The whole story of Herod is a downward look. It's as if envy has him by the back of the head and he's just forcing his head down. Herod never looked up. Verse 25, we used to sing this as a praise song Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. Wow. And then look ahead. I said, envy puts you in the moment. It's always a momentary thing. But God wants us to live with hope. Look at verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, envy is hopeless. There's nothing beyond this moment. But faith sees what envy cannot imagine. This moment for you, wherever you are, is not forever. And God has so much more for you. And when you look up and you remember that, you you have the hope to look forward, you realize he's still in control of your life and you trust him by faith. Look, envy ruined Herod's life. Ruined it. Not only did it ruin his life, it ruined his legacy. And that's what it does. And that's what it's going to do to you. One more story and I'm done. This is actually a parable. Graphic example of the power of envy to destroy I don't remember where I found this. I've had it for years. It's, I'll read it. Two men were in an old hospital room, both seriously ill. Quite small room, just large enough for the pair of them. Two beds, two bedside lockers, a door opening on the hall, and one window looking out on the world. One of them, as part of his treatments, was allowed to sit up in bed for an hour in the afternoon. His bed was next to the window. The other man had to spend all of his time flat on his back, and both of them had to be kept quiet and still, which was the reason they were in that small room by themselves. Every afternoon, when the man in the bed next to the window was propped up for his hour, he would pass the time by describing what he saw outside. And the other man began to live for those hours. The window apparently overlooked a park with a lake where there were were ducks and swans, children throwing them bread and selling model boats, young lovers walking hand in hand beneath the trees. And there were flowers and stretches of grass and games of softball, people taking their ease in the sunshine and... Right at the back, behind the fringe of the trees, a fine view of the city skyline. The man on his back would listen to all of this, enjoying every minute. How a child nearly fell into the lake, how beautiful the girls were in their summer dresses, and then an exciting ball game or a boy playing with his puppy. It got to the place where he could almost see what was happening outside. Then one fine afternoon, the thought struck him, the man on his back. Why should the man next to the window have all the pleasure of seeing what was going on? Why shouldn't... I get the chance. In a few days, he had turned sour. He he should be by the window. And he brooded and couldn't sleep and grew even more seriously ill, which none of the doctors understood. One night, as he stared at the ceiling, the other man, the man next to the window, suddenly woke up coughing and choking, the fluid congesting his lungs, his hands groping for the button that would bring the nurse running But the other patient, the one lying on his back, did nothing. He lay there staring at the ceiling. He did not press the button to bring help. The coughing racked the darkness on and on, choked off, then stopped. The sound of breathing stopped. The man continued to stare at the ceiling. In the morning, the day nurse came in with water for their baths and found the other man dead. They took away his body quietly, no fuss. As soon as it seemed decent, the man asked if he could be moved to the bed next to the window. And they moved him, tucked him in, made him comfortable, left him alone to be quiet and still. The minute they'd gone, he propped himself up on one elbow, painfully, laboriously, and he looked out the window. It faced a blank wall. You know, if you let envy rule you, it will ruin you. You will live without friends. You will live without joy. You will live without purpose. You will live without hope. And you will miss the life that God has prepared for you. Here's the cure look in. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. See if there's any unclean thing in me. Allow the Holy Spirit access to your spirit. Look, if you don't know Jesus, look in is the power and the Spirit of God alive in my life? You know, God wants everybody to know Him, and He's made a plan for you that includes the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, He died for our sins. And when we receive Him by faith, the Bible says He comes into our life, and His Holy Spirit fills our life. But that doesn't mean that all the junk that's in our life is immediately gone. We're forgiven The sin is forgotten. The past is forgotten. Our eternity is secure. I've written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. All of that is sealed. But the work of the Holy Spirit begins to take over. And as the Holy Spirit begins to look into our lives, and He sees things like envy, He says, we've got to deal with this envy because I want you to live an abundant life. And you can never do it when you harbor this green disease. So look in. And then look around. They may have the whole world, but if they don't have Jesus, they've got nothing. God is with you. Look up. Don't let the enemy press your head to the ground. Look up. Jesus was born five miles from Herod, and he never saw him. And then look ahead. God's got a plan for your life, and this ain't it. It's not over right now. And you may not like where you are right now, but God's going to take you to a place you can't believe. But you've got to see that by faith because faith sees what envy will never see. Will you do that? Why don't we just pray right now? And as we go to before the Lord in this moment, I want to ask you, is envy something that you're really struggling with? Would you just allow the Holy Spirit this moment, search me, O oh God, and know my heart and see if there's any unclean thing in me. Would you take that envy right now and just say, God, I confess it, as petty as it sounds, and I leave it with you. I'm not going to want other people's lives anymore. I'm going to celebrate the life you've given me, that you're with me, and I'm going to look to you to be my source and supply. Who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. And Father, you're my hope. And so I trust you with the future. Heavenly Father, thank you for the transforming power of your spirit in this place right now. For too long, we have nurtured envy. We've allowed it to fester and grow in our lives. Social media plays into it. The seasons tend to bring it out. So now that it's exposed, we lay it at your feet. Heal us, cleanse us. Father, thank you for the purifying power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for salvation that comes through Jesus Christ alone. And we receive that in this moment. In Christ's name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.